0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 406, King's Rook Takes Pawn. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to John, Trey, and Rob for signing up already. In early 1068, as William was preparing for his tactical coronation of Matilda, the three sons of Harold Godwinson were in Ireland. They'd gone there to meet with King Diarmat of Dublin and to prepare an invasion force to retake England. These sons were named Godwin, Magnus, and Edmund. They're all young men, probably all teenagers at this point. But their work had been going pretty well. They had secured the support of the King of Dublin, and to that end, they'd gathered over 50 ships for their campaign. And when you look at the situation of England, and the news that was likely to have been trickling into Irish ports, there was a lot to make the boys feel optimistic. Not the least of which was that Norman England was looking pretty shaky at this point. By now, it's likely that Godwin and his brothers had heard about the rebels gathering under the banner of Edric the Wild in the area near Hereford. And if they knew about that, then they definitely had heard that William was forced to essentially abandon the region and leave the rebels alone. They may well have also heard about Osulf of Bambura and how he killed William's puppet ruler and became the Earl of Northumbria himself only to be killed himself while hunting down some robbers, and being replaced by Gospatrick, a strong Northumbrian leader who may well have had claim to multiple dynasties, and possibly even the Scottish royal line. There's also a chance that they'd heard of Harroword, and how he and his kin were responsible for slaying a bunch of Normans in Lincolnshire and I'm certain that they would have heard about how average Englishmen were now taking to the woods and ambushing any Normans who came their way. I mean, things in England had reached a point where William had even been forced to institute a special law, the Murdrum Fine, banning the killing of Normans and punishing entire regions for any unsolved slaying or disappearance of said Normans. So if I was Godwin, Magnus, and Edmund... I would be feeling pretty good about launching a re-invasion right about now. And adding fuel to the fire, William had brought his hostages back with him when he'd returned to England. And shortly thereafter, Edgar the Atheling had fled. And he was still out there. Somewhere. And even though he hadn't yet raised an army, having an Atheling out in the public and out of Norman control wasn't exactly a good situation for William. Similarly, soon after Edwin and Morcar returned from their mandatory Norman holiday, they headed north. And it wasn't to bake a cake for their former royal tour guide. And at the same time, a lot of the remaining English nobility were fleeing the kingdom. And I think you can see why that was the case. The English nobility under King Harold Godwinson was a return to form. They were the courageous, duty-bound thanes that we've grown familiar with. The trouble, though, was that courage and sense of duty was why so many of them died at Hastings rather than fleeing to regroup, and why so many towns and shires, at least those that remained under English control, were now being governed by nobles who were young and inexperienced. Following Hastings, after the nobility had to bury their fathers, brothers, and uncles, there was a change in how the English approached war. The new local leaders no longer saw any romance in a suicide charge. And on the occasions where the English nobility did make a show of force, all too often, when pressed, they'd buckle. And many fled the kingdom entirely. We have records of English nobles abandoning their lands, their subjects, and their duties, only to be found later living in Denmark, Scotland, Ireland, and Flanders. Now, this change only seems to have happened among the nobility. You might recall that when the rebellions seemed to flare in London, it was the nobility who flinched. Same thing with Exeter. In fact, whenever the sources mention the commoners, they seem pretty ready to battle it to the end. And I suspect it's because they had no other choice. If you were risk-averse and you wanted to flee England to save your skin... You'd need a way to pay for that move. And ideally, you'd also want someone who had enough wealth to spare who could take you in. And most people, well, they didn't. The people who were like you and me were at the mercy of the Normans. And that's probably why some of them became Silvatici, living in the woods and engaging in asymmetrical warfare. Edric the Wild and his supporters, who were operating near the Welsh border, were only one of these groups. For example, when Edwin and Morcar went into revolt, we're told that they, quote, "...wandered at large in woods and fields," end quote. The Abingdon Chronicle tells us that there were Englishmen, quote, "...in the woods and some in islands, plundering and attacking those who came their way," end quote. And the Chronicle of Evesham tells a similar tale, Speaking about, quote, outlaws and robbers who hid in the woods and damaged many people, end quote. What Orderic Vitalis called the Silvatici appears to have been a widespread phenomenon. And while some of these wild men may have been opportunistic bandits, Orderic tells us that most of them were politically motivated. We're told that they were acting to throw off what he called the Norman yoke. He tells us of how the English were struggling for their freedom and how they were plotting the downfall of the Normans. So it's very clear from the records that the English commoners still had fight left in them, but there were also precious few English nobles who were willing to fight alongside them or even lead them. But that actually was the perfect opening for an enterprising exiled noble, or in this case, three nobles. And as Godwin, Magnus, and Edmund set sail with their Irish fleet and an army that's estimated to have contained about 3,000 fighting men, they were probably feeling pretty good about their chances. But there were problems. For example, they weren't the only people who were interested in the English crown, nor were they the only people being courted to make war and claim that crown. In fact, at the same time that the Godwinson kids were preparing for their invasion, other English exiles were meeting with King Swain Estrithson of Denmark and asking him to prepare an invasion of his own. Which meant that the Godwinson brothers wouldn't just be facing down William. They might also have to face down Swain. Either way, if the brothers heard about this development, and they likely had, they would know that the North wasn't looking for their leadership Instead, the North wanted to strike out on their own, again. And the North had a long history of telling the Godwinsons exactly where they could shove their ambitions. And that was just complication number one. It turns out that when Edgar the Atheling fled William's court, he didn't go back to Hungary. Or, you know, retire to Flanders. No, instead, the Chronicle tells us that he gathered his mother, Agatha, as well as his two sisters, Christina and Margaret, and all together, they headed to the court of King Malcolm III of Scotland, also known as Malcolm Canmore. Now the traditional telling of this story says that Edgar the Atheling simply shipwrecked in Scotland and he had every intention of actually returning to the continent. But none of that story is in the Chronicle. Instead, the Chronicle tells us that the family just went straight to Scotland. And I think either version is plausible, actually. They might have accidentally ended up in Scotland due to the treacherous nature of the channel, and it certainly wouldn't be the first time that someone got blown off course on that stretch of water. And then, once in Scotland, maybe they just tried to make the best of a bad situation. But it's also entirely possible that Edgar and his family were looking for political support. And they knew that he was likely to find it in Scotland. Due to one very specific reason love well not so much love marriage love wasn't all that important to medieval politics and when you're the scion of the house of wessex everything is politics and as you might remember edgar the atheling wasn't the eldest child of edward the exile that was his sister margaret and you might also remember that Margaret had been betrothed to King Malcolm, but that betrothal had been called off. And it was a broken contract that so enraged the Scottish king that later that year, we see the Scots raiding Durham. And then the king ended up marrying a Norse noblewoman named Ingeborg, who happened to be the niece of both King Olaf II and King Harold Hadrada. So in the end, Malcolm got his political match. However, At some point prior to 1068, Ingeborg died. And so Malcolm was now single and looking to mingle. And Margaret, one of the only remaining members of the House of Wessex, and the eldest child of Edward the Exile, was actually still available. So when Edgar the Atheling, his mum, his sisters, and their various supporters and retainers, arrived in the court of King Malcolm III of Scotland, The Chronicle tells us that the Scottish king wasted no time and began pursuing a match. Now, Margaret wasn't actually all that keen on the idea. She's even recorded as having wanted to remain a virgin for the rest of her life. But Malcolm, undeterred, pressed Edgar to grant permission for the match. Because these were aristocrats and this was the 11th century. So what Margaret wanted didn't particularly matter all that much to the men who held the actual power over her life. Though, if we're being honest here, I'm not sure if Edgar had all that much say in it either. He and his companions were guests in the Scottish court, but they were also exiles and political refugees. And even if the king wasn't making threats there would have been an implicit need for Edgar and his family to stay on Malcolm's good side. The scribes of the Chronicle even noted the duress that Edgar found himself in, telling us that as King Malcolm pressed Edgar for his permission, the young Athling dared not refuse him for they were exiles in his kingdom. The fact was, Edgar and his family would just have to go along with it because of, you know, the implication. So eventually, Edgar relented. And Malcolm married Margaret, quote, though it was against her will, end quote. Now, the scribes write of Malcolm's intentions as purely desire. They talk about how he yearned for Margaret and how he loved how proper her manners were and that kind of thing. But let's be real here. Malcolm wasn't marrying an incredibly polite Tanner's daughter who just happened to be fantastic at setting the dinner table. Malcolm was marrying one of the senior most members of what remained of the House of Wessex during a time when England was racked with political instability and was practically begging for a succession crisis. And Malcolm apparently wanted in on this so badly that he pressed past the wishes of Margaret and her family with his implication. And that fact, and the threat that Malcolm posed, couldn't have been missed by the sons of Harold Godwinson. Which meant that now they had not one, not two, but three potential rivals for the throne. And all of them were kings. And actually one of them was the king of the kingdom that they were sailing towards right now. Furthermore, they all had plausible reasons for why in 1068, they were the rightful heir to England yeah, even William had a plausible argument at this point. Making matters worse, while the sons of Harold Godwinson also had plausible arguments, not the least of which being that they were the sons of the previous king, and while the South, which was where they were headed, had long been the center of the power for the House of Godwin, there was the inconvenient fact that things had gone a little sideways recently for the Godwinsons. Many of the family's oldest supporters for now, fertilizing the fields of Hastings, which wasn't good. And while it was clear that many commoners still supported the family, as was evidenced by the rebellion at Exeter, you had to ask yourself if that was still the case, given the way that it ended. Exeter had begun with a lot of promise. And the people were completely behind the cause. And the Normans totally underestimated the skill and ferocity of the defenders, taking serious casualties in their failed efforts to take the walls. But maybe it kicked off too early. Or maybe there were issues with getting the fleet launched. Or maybe they anticipated more cities to join the rebellion. Whatever it was, something caused the English leadership to lose heart. And when Githa Godwinson and her allies snuck out of the city and fled into the Bristol Channel, it was done. And critically, the people of the city were abandoned by the very same nobles who had dragged them into this conflict in the first place. Nobles, which included Godwinsons. And while some of those nobles may have fled to Ireland to link up with the sons of Harold Godwinson, John of Worcester tells us that many, including Githa and her supporters, Abandoned the struggle entirely and fled to the place that virtually all exiled and outcast English aristocrats go to. Flanders. And funnily enough, that's the same place that Hareward had been calling home for the last several years. But I don't know if he and Getha ever met. I don't even know if they were in Flanders at the same time. But if they were, I have to imagine that he would have had a few things to say about how that business in Exeter had gone especially considering that after Exeter fell, the Southwest had been quickly dominated by William and his army. And Gloucester and Bristol, which might have offered staunch resistance if things had gone differently, instead had offered William their submission. And stick a pin in that one. Bristol had submitted to William. The fact was, if there was a deep English desire to fight William on behalf of the Godwinsons, After Exeter, it was on life support. Making matters worse, William had the crown and he had the support of the papacy. And each of those gave him a strong argument that he was the legitimate ruler of England. And thus, the sons of Harold Godwinson were nothing but usurpers. Something else that would have been weighing on the minds of Godwin, Magnus, and Edmund was the fact that the Normans were building castles in England. And a lot of them. Now, the English were well acquainted with fortifications, as they had burrs all over the place. And a burr was essentially a town enclosed by a large wooden wall. And this system of burrs had provided effective defense for the English population centers for well over a hundred years. And it was still true that if you were a band of raiders going a Viking, a burr could present a formidable and deadly challenge. But the Normans weren't raiders. They were a chivalric army that specialized in siege warfare. And to counter something like that, you don't want burrs. You want castles, which the English didn't have. But the Normans did, because chivalric culture mixed very well with a highly fortified countryside. Knights worked best when they could quickly ride out from a castle, attack, and then ride back behind the safety of the walls. And so everywhere that the Normans went they built castles the landscape of england was being transformed almost overnight we see them constructing castles immediately upon landing at pevensey for example and you might recall that among the many complaints that the english scribes had about the regency of odo and fitzosbern there's also the fact that everywhere those two went they built a castle on top of it the damn things were popping up all over the place and most commonly The Normans of this period were building Mott and Bailey castles. It's thought actually that the Normans nicked the Mott and Bailey style of castle from their rivals in Anjou. And they would have done it for good reason. These things were incredibly quick to construct and proved to be very effective defensive structures. Basically, to build a Mott and Bailey, you begin by digging a large circular ditch. And the Normans almost certainly had the local English handle most of the digging, while the knights would supervise. And as they dug this ditch, they throw all the soil and rocks into the center of the circle, creating a large mound surrounded on all sides by a ditch. The idea was to make the mound as high as possible and the ditch as deep as possible. And then on top of the mound, they'd construct a wooden keep surrounded by a wooden wall. And again, the higher, the better. If the mound was so steep, you could only reach it by a ladder, Perfect, because then if you were under attack, you could just pull the ladder up. And this first phase of construction formed what was called the mott. Then at the bottom and to the side of the motte, they'd dig a large ditch around a flat patch of land, probably no more than a couple acres. And there, they'd construct a secondary fortification. And this would provide accommodation for the knights and other soldiers who held the castle as well as storage, stables, that sort of thing. And this part of the construction formed what was called the Bailey. All told, these things were fairly easy to construct, especially in contrast to later stone castles. And the bulk of the work could be done by leveraging an old English tradition that established that as part of your food rent, you would be required to provide labor for the construction of bridges and fortifications. Now, historians have estimated how many hours of labor would be required to build one of these things, but I've always found it difficult to wrap my head around the total man hours that historians typically use to describe things like this. It's much easier for me to imagine a workforce and then calculate how long it would take that workforce to build it. So that's what I did. And if you had a crew of a thousand laborers, you could construct a smaller Mott and Bailey in about a day. For the largest and most formidable ones, a crew of a 1,000 people could build it in less than a month. So that means that even 100 people could build a smaller Motten Bailey castle in less than a fortnight, meaning less than two weeks. However, given the nature of English bonded service, and then combining that with the sheer number of Norman soldiers and knights in the country, I suspect... the number of builders on your average conquest era castle was significantly more than a hundred. And actually by taking advantage of existing walls and structures, for example, using bits of the defenses, which made up the burrs, the time and effort required to gather materials and construct these fortifications could be lessened even more. And we can see evidence of the Normans doing this in the first days of the conquest. For example, they used the defenses of Dover to supplement the castle that they constructed there. And because Mott and Bailey castles were only a fraction of the size of a burr, this could be done easily and pretty much anywhere a burr existed. Now, granted, constructing a castle within an existing burr would be really effective, but it would also require the destruction of homes and properties of the local English who were residing within the burr. But that didn't really bother the Normans all that much as the people of Dover learned pretty quickly. And it's clear this was also the case elsewhere as well. For example, when we look at the records coming out of Lincoln, Norwich, and Cambridge, all of which were subject to Norman fortifications, we see that literally hundreds of houses were demolished in these towns to make way for the new Norman castles. So the and Bailey castles could be thrown up with remarkable speed and critically it would be the English themselves who would be constructing these instruments of their own oppression. And for many, this would have also meant being forced to destroy their own homes to get it done. And to give you a sense of how formidable these castles were, consider how it changed the tactics of assaulting a fortification. To assault a burr, you'd need to advance on the burr and breach the wall, either by climbing over it or pulling it down. Then you'd have to fight the people inside. And that's pretty much it. Now granted, breaching the wall of a burr could still be an incredibly deadly endeavor, as William and his bros learned at Exeter. But the fact remains that in the end, it's a one-step process. Get past the wall. Now compare that to assaulting a Mott and Bailey castle. The first step is very much like a burr. You need to advance on the fortification. But before you even reach the wooden wall, you've got to get past the ditch, which was likely filled with water and probably also filled with spikes and God knows what else that the builders could think of to slow down an advancing army. Next, you'd have to find a way to get over the wall or pull it down. Then if you were successful and you got inside, you'd basically find yourself inside the barracks. So to celebrate your victory, You would now have the joy of fighting through all the knights, soldiers, panicked horses, random cooks, and whoever else was inside the bailey as you tried to just get to the motte. But before you can even reach the motte, you need to breach the gatehouse at the far end of the bailey. Once past the gatehouse, you'd have to scramble up the mound while being attacked from above. And then once you're at the top, you'd have to find some way to make it past yet another ring of walls. And then after all that, and you get over the wall, you'd be rewarded with even more fighting once you got inside. And then if you managed to kill or capture everyone guarding that inner wall, you'd finally have the joy of trying to breach the keep. And throughout all of this, you would also be experiencing a near constant barrage of arrows, rocks, sticks, hot soup, horse shit, baguettes, pretty much anything the people holding the walls and the keep could throw at you. And about now, even the optimists in the room are feeling a bit queasy at the prospect of assaulting one of these damn things. And Orderic Vitalis, writing about what a problem castles were for the English, pointed out that the English were strong and courageous fighters, but it was the castles that made the difference. Because castles of this type were rare in English-controlled regions, while very common in the Norman-controlled regions. And it was that fact that severely weakened the English position. And you can see why. I mean, they could be built super fast, and once the Normans were dug into a position with one of these things, it was a nightmare to get them out of it. Even worse, because the Norman way of war was to be as mobile as possible, the rapid construction of these castles meant that Sir Ralph and his bros could quickly ride out, attack, and then retreat behind the walls of a nearby castle before a counter-assault could be arranged. What we're talking about here very basically is the Normans compensating for being outnumbered by a hostile indigenous population by embedding force multipliers all over the kingdom. And this ever-expanding meat grinder was what Godwin, Magnus, and Edmund, along with their fleet of over 50 ships from Ireland, were sailing into. Daunting. But then again, given how quickly the Normans were building these things, It was only going to get worse the longer this went on. And they were already late to the party, so they couldn't delay any longer. Now, presumably, the plan was to replicate the successful campaign led by their father, uncles, and grandfather back in the days of King Athelred Unread. Essentially, build a large force and land in England, recruit those who were willing to support the Godwinson cause, and raid those who were not until finally you've gathered a large enough force of popular support to directly challenge William and his Norman occupation army. And a tactic like that would do a pretty good job of heading off the problem of fortifications because they could just avoid any unfriendly fortified towns and instead just focus on recruiting from friendly towns and raiding poorly defended villages that refused to join the fleet. And so the sons of Harold Godwinson and their Irish fleet landed at Avonmouth. And this inlet, placed them very close to the town of Bristol, and only about 35 miles from Gloucester. They weren't all that far from Bath, either. All in all, they are pretty central in the South. And remember, the House of Godwin had a long history with the South, and the people of these lands had shown time and time again that they would answer when called upon by the members of this dynasty. All in all, it was a strong landing choice. The obvious choice. And as Godwin, his brothers, and their supporters disembarked from their ships at Avonmouth, they saw armed men gathering nearby. A lot of armed men. Except these guys didn't look like they were interested in joining the latest Godwinson suicide charge. Instead, they were preparing a defense while also gathering their families and whatever valuables they could and running them over to the nearby bur of Bristol, which you'll recall had recently submitted to William. So this wasn't exactly the warm welcome that the Godwinsons were hoping for. Honestly, it was a bit cold. And the truth is, landing at Avonmouth had actually been a really good idea. And I think that it probably would have been perfect if it had happened several months earlier, back when Exeter was still in open rebellion. Several months earlier, it would have created a straight line between the fleet just outside of Bristol, and then 35 miles to the southwest, you'd have Somerset, which was historically friendly territory, and then just another 35 miles to the southwest, you'd have the Godwinson stronghold of Exeter. Looking at it, you can see the shape of the plan that the Godwinsons probably had in mind. But a lot had changed in the last few months. And apparently, the Godwinson boys were still pressing ahead with the plan. And not everyone was thrilled about that. And that was probably a disappointment for the boys. But at the same time, it wasn't the end of the world. They could just move on to plan B, raid the area. If they couldn't get volunteers, the wealth taken from these townsfolk would allow them to hire more mercenaries. And it would also provide a concrete example to other communities why they should abandon William and join up with the Godwinsons. So it was time to go to work. The brothers had a fleet of over 50 ships. They had thousands of fighting men recruited from Dublin. They were the sons of Harold Godwinson. And who were these guys? The Ferd of Bristol? Whatever. And so Godwin, Magnus, Edmund, and their army pillaged the lands around Avonmouth all as the people of Bristol hastily closed their gates. The valuables of the very same people who Godwin Haroldson and his brothers intended to make their subjects were now being carried off by Irish mercenaries and loaded up onto their ships destined for Dublin. And meanwhile, the raiding army advanced on Bristol. It was now time to show everyone exactly what happens when you resist the rightful heirs to England. So the Godwin Sins and their army readied their weapons and got their asses absolutely f***ing handed to them. Now, as usual, we're not given specifics, but we're told that the brothers were held off by the men of Bristol and that as they fled, they did so completely empty-handed. We're told that they failed to acquire anything from their attempted raid of the town meaning that they had now lost the element of surprise and had managed to make enemies out of one of the major towns in the Southwest. And the only profit from the raid was whatever remaining valuables they managed to find in the little homes of the villagers of Avonmouth. It was an inauspicious beginning. But again, it wasn't really the end of the world either. They could just get back on their ships and sail a little ways farther down the estuary to the Shire of Somerset and Somerset had a long history with rebellions and invading forces. It was there, on Athelney, that Alfred established his camp and waged his guerrilla war against Guthrum. This marshy landscape could be a formidable base camp from which to launch a rebellion. And as a bonus, the boys knew the local magnate. His name was Ednoth the Staller, and he was an old-school Thane. He'd served as a steward for King Edward the Confessor, and he had continued to serve as a steward during the reign of King Harold Godwinson. And as Edward was married to Harold's sister, that meant that Adenoth had served both the Godwinson boys' uncle as well as their father. They had multiple family ties to this guy. And Malmesbury also speaks of how Adenoth was a figure celebrated both at home and abroad. He was also rich, like, crazy rich he had estates all over the southwest at least 30 of them in devon dorset somerset and wiltshire and while we aren't clear on his dynastic background he was of sufficient rank that he was witnessing charters along with harold and archbishop stigand and while the sources don't precisely tell us why the sons of harold godwinson went to somerset when you look at who was in those lands and when you look at the history of how those lands had waged successful insurgencies, again, you can start to see the hint of a plan. And I suspect that the sons of Harold Godwinson were looking to replicate the earlier success of King Alfred the Great himself. And so, as Alfred had the support of Athelnoth of Somerset, perhaps they were seeking something similar with their father's former steward, Aidnoth the Staller. And as the sons of Harold Godwinson made landfall in Somerset and were met at Bledon by their old family steward, they saw that he was joined by an army. A lot really had changed over the last couple years. Now, it is possible that Aednoth had always been hostile to the Godwinsons, and he only remained as a steward for Harold because of a sense of duty. But it's also possible that this was just a change of heart. And if it was... I'm pretty sure it was driven by the fact that Aednoth was one of three English nobles who had acquired a huge amount of land in exchange for supporting William and the Normans. We see Aednoth's name right alongside Thorkell and Tostig's right-hand man, Copsiga, The same Copsiga who was so hated by the Northumbrians that they assassinated him. But all three of them got really rich from their support of William. And honestly, if the Godwinson boys had good intel, they really should have seen this coming. Because it wasn't just that Adenoth got a lot of land. We also see him along with Thorkell, Tovi, Merle Swain, and a number of other powerful English sheriffs witnessing charters in the court of King William. This guy was thoroughly in the Norman camp by now. And I have to assume that the Godwinsons were taken by surprise, and they didn't anticipate this turn. Because why else, in the aftermath of getting their butts kicked in Bristol, would they go to Somerset unless they thought it was friendly territory? So it must have been quite disheartening to realize that Ednoth had thrown his lot in with William. And even worse, to see that the steward, along with Tovey, the sheriff of Somerset, had raised the furred to see the job done. And the fact was, under the reign of the Normans, sheriffs had become incredibly powerful essentially serving as the king's deputy in the region. So the force that Tovi and Adenoth gathered was undoubtedly formidable. Now, interestingly, Tovi was probably the descendant of Tovi the Proud, who was a powerful noble during the reign of King Canute, and who was linked to the famed Holy Cross of Waltham, which was the same cross that King Harold Godwinson credited with curing him of illness, and which he had prayed to before marching on Hastings. So there was a family link there. But then again, hey, my dad prayed at a cross that your ancestor reportedly found probably wasn't enough to gain Toby's loyalty. Especially given how things have been going recently. So there's no way around this. Aidenoth had made his choice and the Godwinsons were going to have to deal with it. And their basic position can be summed up as authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, Stuart. Yeah, they were going to have to fight it out. Now, the scribes have precious little to say about the battle that followed there in the fields of Bledon. But we're told that heavy losses were taken on both sides. And that in the fighting, Aednoth was cut down. But in the end, the sons of Harold Godwinson and their army were forced to retreat back to their ships. And likely in an effort to refill their coffers after such a disastrous campaign, we're told that the fleet raided their way back out of the Bristol Channel before returning, once again, to Dublin. The return of the Godwinson dynasty, which might have been successful if it had taken place just a little bit earlier, was instead an abject failure. And they had been defeated, not by the French, but by the English themselves. This was a disaster for the Godwinsons. But, at the same time, this misadventure was successful enough to spook William. Because pretty soon we see him and his eldest son, who was also named William because Normans were about as creative as they were gentle, well we see the two of them working to establish a stronger presence on the northern shores of the Bristol Channel. And given how much they loved castles, I'll give you one guess as to how they went about establishing that presence. Which was yet another disaster for the exiled Godwinsons. Probably shouldn't have pinned all your hopes on a few teenagers showing up on time. Well, up. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to join any of our communities, you can find links to all of them in the community section of the British Thanks for listening.